welcome to Imagine Me and Mawaru Penguin Drum. I am Panda. I am your host, and I am here with my co-host Alice. Hi, Alice. Hello. And Alice's co-host Cass. Hi, Cass. Hello, hello. And we are here to talk about episode nine. I almost said seven. I don't know why. Of you can talk about episode seven if you want. <laughs> Yeah, sure. Let's talk about episode seven again. Yeah. Um, episode nine of Moaru Penguin Drum, and I believe it is called Frozen World. Yep. And unlike most episodes, we actually just, the three of us, sat down and watched it all together. And now we're going to watch it again for content. This is my fault, by the way. <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. It was an, a, an enjoyable experience. For context, people who are watching Penguin Drum in the same way I am, which is um, downloading it from <laughs> someone else's Google Drive. It's support the official release, kids. <laughs> the events of the end of Episode 8 dovetail perfectly into the beginning of 10. So if you're not paying attention, because Penguin Drum's title cards show up at the end of the episode, not at the beginning, you can, in fact watch an entire episode in advance at the time I normally prepare for the show and only find out when asking about it that you missed an episode. An entire episode. (laughs) And what an episode to miss, too. This would have been... um, I'm excited to talk about episode 10 now that I've accidentally seen it ahead of schedule, but I'm I'm really excited to talk about this one, so I guess we should get going. Yeah, we... uh, This would be quite an episode to miss, I'd say. I can't believe, well, no, I'll save that for the appropriate moment. Yes, it would be an episode <laughs> to miss. It has given me the idea to, for a essay to, a shitpost essay to write for uh, Empty Movement. I'm going to say that up front. Oh, yeah, you absolutely should, because you made this same joke before we started recording, and I love it, and I need you to write this essay. So we open picking up at the aquarium. Not in the middle of the road where Shoma just got hit by a car. <laughs> uh, most of this episode is going to be taking place within, is it fair to say, within the mind of Himari? Yeah, and especially like this beginning of the episode takes place specifically like during, I, I believe this is like during the day of- That she collapsed in the aquarium. Yeah, her collapse in like the the first episode or whatever. We are watching, in fact, the exact dialogue and events play out of the three of them watching the penguin enclosure. But notably, we are going to get more of uh, Himari's perspective on the uh, events of this day, but not, this isn't just like a flashback, let's say. Yeah, although it does start there. So we pick up at the penguin enclosure where they're being very cute. And penguin number three, uh, Samchan, is just slipping behind everyone. We get the exact dialogue from episode one playing out. All three of them teasing each other, Kanba, Shoma, and Hikari teasing each other, Kanba going away because he gets a phone call, and Shoma making the joke about yucky playboy things, and Himari sees Penguin 3. And as Sho walks away, she mentions it just as the penguins do a beautiful synchronized dive, and she gets hit by a, in a flash of light. She gets distracted, turns, and sees a young, what looks like, could be a young boy could be a young girl very very young younger than her androgynous child in poofy shorts uh she sees literally the this show's equivalent of oh my god black rose arc name of the guy that anthe impersonates for several episodes (laughs) (laughs) wow wow spoilers for utina by the way I feel like if you're here, you've seen Utsuna, but that might be... I would hope. Yeah, I guess I would hope. Because <laughs> I don't think we've been, like, careful about Utsuna spoilers so far. If you haven't seen the 30-plus-year-old anime that is, in fact, the basis of this entire podcast's original form, that's your fault now, caveat emptor. <laughs> Cut from that to the opening sequence... Notably, it has been 
three episodes since we've had a Princess of the Crystals incident. Yeah? Mm. Well, no. From this episode, it'll have been two. Uh, I'm just going to give an incredibly minor spoiler for ten. There will, in fact, be a three-episode stretch of episodes with no Princess of the Crystals, and this is number two. Oh. Yeah, we saw the hat briefly, but other than that, we don't get our, uh... There will be no survival tactic. Oh no, I don't have the survival tactic in the soundboard. <laughs> I had to take it out because I had to put something in for another show. Let me see if you, I can. You've been There we go. There we go. I can... <laughs> Zencaster has made it so that I can upload sounds in the middle of the episode now. Oh, thank you, Zencaster. I know. So luxurious. Anyway, uh, picking up with the episode proper again, we are now in the aquarium gift store where the hat was originally purchased. And we are getting the uh, the scene where Himari and Shoma are purchasing the hat, but uh, from... Penguin number three's perspective. From Sonny's POV. <laughs> she's just like stalking the two of them. It's pretty funny. And as Sonny like sneaks around... Himari sees her and runs after her into the aquarium elevator, where, you know, first of all, this is a deliberate break from reality. This did not happen. This is the point where she would have collapsed in real life. Yeah. And second of all, Sunny immediately hits the uh, descent button on the elevator. And as Himari's like, oh, he gave me a scare, just kicks the elevator door panel, revealing an even more elaborate series of descending buttons. And descends all the way to the 61st basement floor. Yeah, it's uh, pretty funny. I think I made the joke of uh, this is just going to open onto the uh, school from Review Starlights. Yeah. <laughs> you can tell if you've seen that show, this is probably explicitly the elevator that... This and not the one from Utena, weirdly enough, is probably the scene that inspired the, uh, the descending elevator in that show. Yeah, I could believe that. It's missing a guy with pink hair to tell me I have to go deeper. Well, funny you mentioned that. <laughs> About that. Put a pin in that. Anyway. They're at the library that Kimari always- Pause, reverse. I need to look at those statues a little bit closer. Oh, yeah, of course. So there are two statues outside the library. Okay, no, I got excited for a second because one of them looks a little bit like it. I thought for a second it was a Shadow Girls Easter egg. Yeah, one of them does kind of look like the Shadow Girls, but it's uh it appears to be a boy and a girl. Yeah, it's it's just it's just statues. This is a library that Himari always goes to. Mhm. Uh she goes in, stands in a line and just, you know, as you do after you've been chasing a magical penguin into the elevator that takes you to a library that cannot possibly be there, returns a bunch of books. Alice, would you like to, um, do you notice anything about the books here? Alright, let's look at these. Also, by the way, I just want to say for, say for the record that Hamari is in Dark Souls 2 now. <laughs> that's, yeah. the that's the elevator. The Sputnik weirdo learned to earn ten times more. Christine. Christine. Another one. It's a second Christine. Both of them are by Stephen Queen. <laughs> she's holding two, or she's trying to return two copies of the book Christine by Stephen Queen. Queen. We know how uh, Ikuhara feels about cars, so uh, this is not surprising. Yep. Wait, what? Christine, the Stephen King? Yeah. Yeah. That's what this is a reference to. Alice, please tell me you know what a Tucker Talisman is. What the fuck are y'all talking about? Christine is the Stephen King novel about the car that comes to life and does murder. Oh, I've never heard of that one. What? Yeah, I'm, lo I'm looking it up right now. I've never heard it's of it. It's in the Dark Tower. They made a movie. There are so many things in the Dark Tower that I probably missed dozens of them. Apparently he wrote a book about tiny alien men who manipulate your emotions so like i don't i cannot keep up with every weird thing that stephen king guess, writes okay. in a drug a drug haze that's why i was uh prompting you to point out the book titles is because i assumed that you would recognize that this is a stephen king reference no you have a leg up on me here actually <laughs> Yeah, uh, Christine is about a, an evil car, and we know how Ikuhara loves cars. 
I yeah, believe it's a red that. car also. Yeah, the- from the from the cover of the book, it seems to be, yeah. Yeah, also, uh, I apologize. I got very mixed up for a second. Stephen King fans, forgive me. Christine is a Plymouth Fury, not a Tucker Talisman. The Tucker Talisman is a car that shows up in Needful Things and is also an evil car that's definitely possessed. I see. Stephen King keeps writing this. Well, I mean, you know, if anyone knows about recycling themes from your previous work, we're about to find out, in particular with Ikahara in this episode. Uh, anyway, Himari asks if she can find the book, where she can find the book, Super Frog Saves Tokyo, which is a delightful name. Uh, the librarian tells her that the book doesn't appear to be in their database. Something uh, interesting that I realized is that all of the other people in the library that Himari is at are like the the little the traffic subway. sign subway sign people. Uh, but the librarian is like a normal person. I know. It's it's only the one she's interacting with that is a human. Himarian says she's seen the book before, she's sure it's there, and the librarian's like, Well, you probably misremembered the title slightly. Would you like me to search for a similar thing? And she goes, No, I'll I'll just try and find it by memory. So uh, speaking of which, uh, Sunny just like plumps her little cheeks up and goes like, oh, I'm so excited. So cute. I know. Cass, do you know about how in Japanese, I don't know how it is in libraries, but in Japanese bookstores, oftentimes books are categorized by publisher, not by author. I had heard about something of that nature, yeah. I just the interesting uh that it yeah, would it's a weird little feature. Yeah, uh would make tracking down this book a little more difficult, I imagine. Yeah, because you could just find the author and like find all of their works together. Mm-hmm. So Himari is just tracing her hand along the shelves, and as she does, she notices that Sunny's doing the same thing. She's like, Oh, hey little penguin, will you help me search? And Sunny just goes like, I'm a dip. And leads Himari on a merry chase down the aisles of the library, which is strangely empty, considering we saw a huge line of people earlier. And we also, uh, it's prudent to point out that Sunny, despite the fact that this is supposedly like Himari's memories of what happened, Sunny already has her three written on her back, which she would not have had at the time that all of this was supposed to have happened yeah so like this is an extremely liminal space at this point mm-hmm. and as sunny makes a left turn himari looks down uh the row of bookshelves and sees a door made up of sliding panels that are constantly moving and shifting around with numbers on them that make up a little uh skyscape kind of like a um a sliding picture puzzle man the mist games got really weird <laughs> yeah, I did. It looks like what's going on there is that if you look, it's, I tell a lie, that looks like a skyscape from a distance. Peering closer now that we have, we're pausing the episode to make points about it, it's a lot more obvious that what this is, is it's a broken up jigsaw of the face, of the little stylized penguin face emblems. Oh, yeah! I uh, hadn't put that together either. Yeah, you can see the details are just all jumbled up. Yeah, well, the the tiles move so much when you're looking at it when it's playing that yeah, it is a little more difficult to tell. Yep. And Himari asks if this door was here before. Gee, Himari, I wonder. Uh, Himari just, like, imagines a bunch of birds flying up into the air and looks up at the skylight in the ceiling. There's kind of an implication here, and I kind of wonder if... This is not playing out one for one with the actual events of the real world, but I'm wondering if that is supposed to make us remember her collapse. If we're supposed to read this as this part of the event or this dream is taking place in the moments between when he, Himari is uh, has just had her collapse from whatever congenital failure is killing her mm-hmm. and like her revival by the hat. I, there's something very unnerving about the way her head jerks back in this scene. Yeah. Oh, there's like a, there's several different angles and the way people move, just jerking motions. There's weird in this episode. It is unsettling. It's like a a touch Lynchian this episode. Yeah. 
Like it's not yeah. quite Lynchian, but it's got like some of that in there, definitely. Oh, yeah, absolutely. The door has assembled itself enough that Sunny is able to reach up and open it, and the light from the skylights just gets brighter and brighter, and Mari finds herself standing in an impossibly massive warehouse-sized room. Uh, by the way, she finds herself standing on a symbol that is a... Can we just scroll back to that for a second? Yeah. Yeah, I want to take a quick look at that. So I'm not sure what this is. It's a fractal symbol that looks like a spiral with arrows pointing outward. It looks like a code of the circles rather than a spiral. It kind of reminds me of one of the symbols on Naruto headbands. It's... It, it looks like the Code Lyoko symbol. I can see that too, for sure. Yeah, it's it's a very simple symbol. What's interesting about it is that one of the characters pointing off from it says Ka line. And so my Egyptology is a little rusty. But if I remember right, Ba and Ka are two the two things that your spirit uh, separates into after death. Hmm, interesting. Yeah. And one of them is kind of like your material body versus your kind of like immortal spirit. Okay. Which I am going to very quickly, actually. Gonna do a Google. I'm gonna do Google foo. Google. Ka is one of the principal aspects of the soul. The ka, yep, the ka survives the death of the body and could reside in a picture or statue of the person. Okay. Uh, so it is one of the bits of you that survives death in Egypt, the Egyptian reckoning of the afterlife. So that kind of lends some credence if that's what that cause referring to, to this being something that Himari experienced in kind of the liminal space between uh, life and death. This, of course, is Borges's um, <laughs> infinite library. Yes, uh, filled with nothing but super frog titles. <laughs> Himari rocks past a book that says super frog saves Professor Azuma. Then another super frog saves Dr. Yanagibara, and immediately we get some fucking musical sting and a pink-haired hot guy wearing a librarian's outfit and in full-on apron just jumps down from a ladder, and I said, on immediately watching this episode, I said the words, oh, hey, it's our Akio, and Alice corrected me that it's the guy from the Black Rose arc. Yeah, I feel like... In creating, uh, we're about to learn that this guy's name is Sanatoshi. And in creating Sanatoshi, Ikuhara just took Akio and Mikage and kind of split the difference. I know. Um, and you know what? I actually, I like this guy. Uh, that might I change. I don't know enough to know whether I hate him yet. <laughs> I don't know enough about him to know whether or not I really should hate him. I do have a line when it comes to villains, but he seems fun. <laughs> it, it does have the obvious, all the obvious tells of a uh, Ikuhara bad guy, though. Yeah. Oh, but I love, I love his luxurious hair. Ikuhara doesn't make bad guys. He makes misplaced Dark Souls NPCs. <laughs> just, they're just fucked up little guys who say weird things and ha hang out in strange places. Waiting for you to come by so they can go, hey, hey, how's this? Going to the end of the world, Traveler? I wish I could make the title of this episode fucked up, little guys. <laughs> I'm just going to tell you right now that uh, Alice may or may not be thinking about this because I spent a day last week playing a one-page RPG rules game called Fucked Up Little Man. Yeah! A tabletop, a tabletopable one-adventure game. Where you and your friends all get to make up your own favorite Dark Souls NPC and then pilot around a hapless idiot who has to listen to them. And then you just get to, like, be the fucked up little guy who says You roll on a table shit. to find out your refrain and literally half the results on the table are... <laughs> yeah, I actually, I saw that, uh... That page. That, that page floating around Twitter, uh, like, last so week, good. two weeks ago, something like that. I can guarantee that not only is it great, but the one campaign I got to I got to uh, experience of it ended its session with uh, the damned one literally and uh, totally destroying Hidetaka Miyazaki, who was the final boss. Amazing, ten out of ten. Anyway, but yeah, Sanatoshi absolutely up for time. <laughs> uh, he is tall and beautiful and has gorgeous uh pink hair he gives me kind of 
And it's not just the pink hair, but he does give me sort of, oh, what's my boy's name? Other than Mikage? Yeah. Morlucia from Kingdom Hearts. Yeah. Oh, God. Now I can't not see it. He gives me some Marluxia vibes. Which does mean he will uh, unceremoniously die in the third act. <laughs> it sounds like one of those Kingdom Hearts people that I refuse to know the name of. Well, I just told you his name is Marluxia, so. It's already come out. It's already fallen out the other side of my head. Uh, he asks Himari what kind of book she's looking for at, while Sunny runs around in circles behind him. <laughs> yep. And. Sky, Annex. Interesting. Yeah, he does literally say Anawahoru. Yeah, he. It, he introduces the area that he's in as the Central Library's Hole in the Sky Annex, or what was it in Japanese, Cass? I think he actually says Anawahoru no Sora, the hole dug in the sky, I think is what he says. He also, in the English dub, they use like the Japanese name. Yep, in, in Japanese. Anyway, his name is Sanatoshi. He's the keeper of this library. He is very, very polite to Himari, and she just goes like, okay, uh, can you help me find the book? Superfrog Saves Tokyo? He says, and he doesn't say this, but he just implies through a tilt of his head, sure, after a very weird and uncomfortable journey through your memories. <laughs> As, you, As wish. you wish. he says, and we are off. Sunny is reading a book behind him. Come to find the book she desires. Oh, and Sunny is reading uh, Superfrog Saves Dr. Yanagibari. So off the uh, trio goes, <laughs> Sanatoshi promises to find it like finding a single pearl in the seven seas. He's really overselling himself. He's <laughs> like, what a strange guy. Yeah, in, in the subtitles, she says, what a strange man. Notably in the English dub, she calls him a weirdo, which I really like. <laughs> yep. They walk past a couple of different books and Sanatoshi starts ruling them out. It is notable that at this point they are walking down what appears to be an endless set of staircases that all run parallel to each other. And Himari just goes like, hey, is this really in the library? Yeah, it seems unusually spacious. And Sanatoshi's like, no, it, it's really in the library, but you're our first guest in a while. Only chosen guests are allowed in this space. It's a special library. Himari asks if that means she's special, and he says, yeah, you're chosen by fate. At which point he finds a book called Super Frog Saves H-Trio and tells her that this is a story about you, which you wanted to find because you always wanted to be on the radio. <laughs> this is a joke I had to save. <laughs> I know. I was also thinking that exact same. I was thinking about that, that exact same bit. So I'm glad that you you did it. Thank you. So we kind of pick up from... Uh, Sanatoshi reading from the book, and far from being about a super frog, it appears to be about Himari, who used to have two friends. And currently, the the way the shot is framed, uh, like everything in the library is dark, or in the the annex is dark, except for two spotlights, one on Sanatoshi and one on Himari. And so he informs her that she used three years ago. She had the girl had precious companions who shared the same dream. And this uh, begins to bleed into a flashback. Oh, he also uses the descriptor, the three girls made each other shine like stars bound by gravity. This guy's so fucking extra. I know, right? So the flashback text for this subway sign is, uh, Himari, elementary school classroom, inside friendship after school. The three started it all, preparing for the audition. So we cut to what appears to be a flashback to Himari's youth, where she is flanked by two friends one with red hair one with blue hair two very familiar looking friends yep and they have taken a cute little photo of the three of them posing together and they are talking about setting up for an audition this is hikari and hibari who are as we know the duo double h in the present and this is Apparently a completely real series of events. This is actually Himari's memories, which we have not been privy to up to this point. I'm just going to very quickly run through the events of this flashback in mock speed, but the three <laughs> of them <laughs> argue over what name to call their group. Himari, 
he, no, Hibari votes for the Otters, which gets shot down immediately because it sounds too much like a comedy group. The it's same not time. Rejected last year. <laughs> it immediately suggests the Penguins. Doesn't that sound like a group of French girls? No, that sounds like a Little League baseball team. The Penguins are cute! As the three of them are thinking, Himari has a brainwave and looks at their backpacks, which all have their names with alphabet letters on them, which is a pretty common, like, little cute thing to get for young girls in Japan. You may know this from having watched literally any of Cardcaptor Sakura. <laughs> and she kind of notices that the letter H starts all of their names, so she suggests the name Triple H. So that is, in fact, why this group is named after uh, the current guy who is apparently the new head of creative direction for the WWE. <laughs> that is true, by the way. That That's not a shit Yes. Apparently they are going to be doing a video for an audition tomorrow, so they have to wear ma- matching ribbons. Or they won't make the deadline. We zoom in on a shot of their instruments. So the three of them each have an instrument in the little photo they did. I have not quite figured out which one is Hibari and which one is Hikari yet, but their two instruments are an ocarina and a tambourine. Himari's, which she has set off to the side, are a pair of maracas. I believe we can actually see some of those being played in the played with in the uh, ending sequence mm-hmm. for uh, Dear Your Future. So yep. there's a little bit of extra significance to that now. Mm-hmm. Himari just has this sudden brainwave of like, oh yeah, that 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 did happen. She looks kind of upset, which I yes. mean, I guess I would be too if I would say sullen. Yeah, if someone made me relive this memory. Yeah, as we see, this is not necessarily the happiest of memories. Uh, Sonatoshi goes, oh, but that's not the book you're looking for. You were looking for the the one about the frog. It's on to the next book. Then this is interesting. So. I'm making a joke here, but it becomes more obvious as this goes on that while she gave him the title Super Frog Saves Tokyo, which is probably not, in fact, about her, some of the later dialogue implies she is kind of semi-aware of what kind of space she's in and is, in fact, looking for a specific book that triggers a specific memory. We get a flashback to the Takakura home as Himari's mom ties new ribbons into her hair and just tells her how pretty she is. I cannot remember if these are the ribbons she's seen wearing when she has her hair up in buns later in the show. I will have to pay more attention next time. (laughs) But she is deeply disappointed because these ribbons are not the ribbons she wanted. They are not the ones that match with the other two. Uh, Himari's mom says, I'm sorry, the kind you wanted is sold out. Himari kind of throws a fit because she is a kid and she's in elementary school and she promised her friends they would have matching ribbons for a deadline tomorrow. And she feels very upset because her mom promised, promised, promised she would get the right kind, calls her a liar. And as she shakes her mom's shoulders... She slips, hits the mirror with her ankle, and immediately it falls and looks like it's fallen on her. And mm, it looks like mom tanked it. Uh, that... (laughs) This this whole sequence is like... I'm gonna be real. I, I like to give a little bit of leeway to elevated realism in Ikuhara stuff because you kind of have to. But this particular series of events coming after the very specific and slightly more grounded bit where the kid's dad took a hit for uh, Kanba from the uh, glass that was blowing around in the typhoon just kind of hits me with like, how many more times are we going to specifically get someone in this family jumping in front of a falling mirror for someone else. It's kind of a tradition. (laughs) It is literally a parental tradition for these three. I'd like to also point out here briefly that um, up till this point, we've kind of got mostly gotten Himari. I mean, Himari, kind of like, um, how about this? We've gotten to see a very narrow range of emotion. She has always been like a perfect, pure cinnamon roll who... While she is capable of acting selfishly, is only really selfish insofar as, like, 
she will occasionally make her disapproval of the two boys known when they are not paying attention. Up until this point, we've mostly gotten her and this sort of idealized cinnamon roll, cinnamon roll kind of state that the boys obviously kind of see her as. This is Himari as she kind of remembers herself and. You can kind of see why an incident like this would lead to you having some fucked up views of how nice you actually are deep down. Yeah. Uh, anyway, it's time for us to move past the uh, mid-episode uh, break and into another flashback immediately. It is the hospital. Mother is in bandages. I'm sorry, Mom, I didn't mean to. Apparently the mirror thing was really really bad it must have shattered dramatically uh the doctor kind of explains to himari's dad while himari can hear him that the cuts were deeper than they expected and they're gonna have to admit her for a few days and there is at least one cut on her face that will definitely scar and as uh himari's mom wakes up she asks to see himari's face and as Samari looks up, she just sees her mom's face from a slightly weird angle, laying in the bed with a big old bandage on it. As she says to her, oh good, you aren't hurt. I would hate if anything happened to your face. Can we talk about how weird that angle on her on her is? Yeah, the look on her mom's face is very uh, disconcerting. It looks, literally, it looks like a bit from even End of Eva. Like, it looks like a couple of specific bits of End of Eva. Like we're off the. It reminds me of the Oscar like pathetic face. <laughs> it's this weird angle with this weird dead fish look in the eyes. It's just it's deeply disconcerting, and it really adds to the sort of dreamlike, feverish night, almost nightmarish quality of this entire episode, which we get through the constant phone ringing kind of sensation where you're about to wake up and. Something is slightly off about literally everything kind of going on. I really like it. It's a good touch. Yeah, it's just, it's once again, very unnerving. So poor Himari has to live with the fact that she has inadvertently, through her temper tantrum, gotten her mom scarred for life, literally. And Himari's mom just says, hey, you're going to become an idol, right? I'm really looking forward to it. So I'm really happy you weren't hurt. Himari just bursts into tears and hugs her mom, and that is about where this flashback ends. Damn. We get a very, very gentle animation of her mother's hand covering Himari's and, like, holding her. It's very sweet. Sanatoshi says, ah, oh, the story of love between a mother and a daughter, but this is also not the book you're looking for. It's a tearjerker, don't you agree? Yup. My, my, we have quite a demanding guest here today, as to be expected. And he says, they've got to go deeper. Yep. Villain's <sighs> so nice, he made him twice. Yep. So down they go to another layer. We have gone from a red book to a yellow book to another red book. And I'm sure there's a significance to this. But if there is, I don't know. <laughs> it's connected to the stopwatch. The next day, so Sanatoshi is reading from this book, and it begin the prologue that he leads into the next flashback with begins, the next day, the girl told her friends everything, that her selfishness had scarred her mother for life, that she couldn't get her hands on the ribbon as promised. Perhaps the girl wanted to punish herself by telling them the truth, but those two might hate her for that. Those thoughts made her throat tighten up. We get another flashback. Yep. The Forbidden Flay, Barefoot Gone chapter, what will happen? By the way, if you don't know what Barefoot Gone is, I will be explaining that briefly, because this is one of the most fucked up things in the entire Yeah, do you want to, like, do you want to go over that real quick now, or? Uh, yeah, let, let's just fucking do that when it comes up, because I think it will be narratively appropriate. Okay. So, onward we go. We cut to everyone at the shoe racks in school as... Himari tells Hikari and Hibari to go ahead and make the video themselves because she couldn't get the matching ribbons and she feels like she's kind of let everyone down and kind of encourages them to audition on their own. To which the two of them just respond, I wonder how we can help your mom get better. Just absolutely turning down her kind of act of self-sacrifice with self-pity and by going like, hey, 
we care more about your mom being in the hospital than we care about you not having a ribbon or throwing off our audition timing. You're our best friend, which is genuinely the sweetest thing. Yeah, it's really sweet. Too bad the rest of the episode happens. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> which I am, I have a theory. So the two of them kind of laugh off the whole incident. They're like, you know, our best friend's mom is hurt. We're also worried about her. So, like, we want to do what we can. But what can they do? And that's when these kids have a brainwave. I read it in Barefoot Gone from the library! Now right. I will tell you. Barefoot Gone is the, is the lighthearted story of a young boy named Gone. Oh, I know that one that's um Hunter x Hunter, right? No, <laughs> a little before that one, and also you don't say the X. No, I, I, I know, I, I said it because Alice always does it. It's Hunter contra Hunter, for one thing. And secondly, <laughs> Gone is obviously the fox for the saddest story ever written. Don't you bring up that fucking story, I will... It's very, it's very sad, listeners. This is um, a fan discussion, we talked yeah, about Yeah, I'm not gonna tell you about it. Barefoot God, Gaspies, keep going. Barefoot God is the lighthearted story of a young boy named Gon who is living in a beautiful and idyllic Japanese city in the 1940s, Hiroshima. Oh, boy. Barefoot God is the story of the ap- of kids living in the aftermath of the nuclear bomb. Yikes. The coy, the the cure that not that like yikes, but like ah, yeah, yeah. The cure that she read about in that book, yeah, you can understand it in the context of like a thing that desperate people living in the ruins of Hiroshima do. Barefoot Gone is a book where Gone is not entirely understanding the hugeness of what he is in, even as he is in it. Yeah, which makes this even more fucked up. It is layers of fucked up. It is a fucked up like moussaka of bad (laughs) the sick mom drank fresh koi blood to get better so this is actually a japanese superstition that if you drink the blood of a koi you'll live for a very long time but it is just that a superstition so there is in fact a koi pond at the school and the three of them head out to it and are able to capture a koi that koi is about as big as Himari. I know. And then they, it's lived a long time. And then the other two push it on the ground and hand Himari a fucking baseball bat and go, go for Himari. End its life in one shot. Finish it off and obtain the fresh blood. And we get this adorably messed up shot of Himari standing there with a wide zoom lens applied. You better do oh, it in one shot, Himari. As long as she is tall and looking very confused and scared. I wish the listeners could have heard Alice react to this in real time. Yeah. This, is, this is some, like, fucking paranoia agent shit. <laughs> it really is, though. What did I say the first time? I don't remember, but you were like, no, not this. <laughs> I believe I said something effective like, oh, come the fuck on. Himari is Simon from Lord of the Flies now. Uh, yeah, you did say come the fuck on. Yeah, Himari does raise the bat high to do the deed, and the girls are interrupted by a male voice, and they have been taken to the staff room where a male teacher is lecturing them, telling them off because the koi was a gift from last year's graduates. Do you have nothing to say for yourselves? You leave me no choice. I'll have to call your parents. Dun, dun, dun. And as Samari is about to confess, the other two just literally I am Spartacus her. They jump in and both of them independently say, I was the one who put us up to it. I let her drink koi blood and live a million years. (laughs) And as they're arguing, Himari tries to go, no, it was really my mom. And they're like, no, I refuse. I was the one. It was me. And the teacher is just like deeply confused about what to even do in this situation. Yeah. Just was not expecting all three of them to I am Spartacus. As the three of them walk home from school, uh, Himari tells Hibari and Hikari, thank you. And the two of them remind her that they're the Triple H. Their fates are bound as one, right? And Himari says she loves both of them. This is going to end sadly. Sanatoshi mentions in the present, well, present with 
you know, giant quotes about around it <laughs> to Kamari that she seems not very pleased about this one either. Right, the part you really wanted to read was the rest of this book. Himari, elementary school field, says the next flashback. Going home, end of friendship, last day of school, something hit my bag. As Himari is walking home alone out the same school gates, an eraser just glances off her bag, obviously thrown at her by someone. She looks up and sees what looks like a very upset Hikari and Hibari in through the classroom window as everyone stares down at her. And she mentions that that was the last day she went to school. I also want to point out that the eraser was like 3D modeled and the way that it moved was really funny. (laughs) Yes, it was. For some reason, the eraser reminds me of Fully Cooley and I don't know why. (laughs) I don't know how to track that one either. I'm going to be honest with you. Was it soundtracked by the pillows? Um, probably, but I think it was because it's, like, when it shows up, it's, like, suspended in midair, and has some, like, writing on it, and for some reason, I was just immediately reminded of the cigarette that says, nothing knows best, or whatever. (laughs) (laughs) And, like, ah, yes, the PG version of this. Anyway, uh, we are shown in a series of cuts that kind of move forward to the present, that Hikari and Hibari very obviously have gone on to form Double H short ahimari and sanatoshi brings up two years later you encountered them again in the cruelest way possible or in an unimaginably cruel fashion and what he is referring to is not an in-person meeting but one of the little subway ads that for this episode is don't give up on your dreams yeah damn and the end of the flashback is himari watching them on video at home If that had never happened, you would be with them. Maybe you would be singing with them as Triple H. There's an interesting thing here, because the obvious answer to what the that is here is if you hadn't gotten sick. Uh Uh-huh. Because we know Himari's been sick for a very long time. But I wonder if that's the case, because why is she getting things thrown at her if she's out of school from illness? Yeah, I don't know. There is definitely something connected here, and I kind of wonder if it has something to do with the fact that, again, we did have that moment in one of the earlier episodes where the group deliberately took the photo of their parents when uh, Rin was over and put it facing down, which is not a thing you would do under any circumstances for dead loved ones normally, especially not in Japan. Yeah. So I kind of think their parents were either involved in or were implicated in something very, very bad. And there is a level of social shame there. We will have to see. We will indeed. Himari says, you know, like, yeah, I could have been with them, but it's in the past. And Senatoshi says, well, why then were you searching for this story? To drown yourself in petty self-pity? Himari's response is, no, I just want to make sure it's in the past, which is an interesting response. And also... Yeah, does imply that she is to some extent lucid of what's happening right now. Mm-hmm. Sanatoshi suggests that perhaps deep down she despises them. By the way, I love this because Himari is getting kind of gaslit here and she responds very directly like, nope. <laughs> yeah, uh, Himari would not fall prey to the uh, Black Rose elevator. She would not. She just deliberately goes like, Nope, they were my friends at the time. I still cheer them on from the bottom of my heart, which we kind of note is, from all evidence we've seen so far in the series, true. Mm. She has been deliberately following Triple H this whole time as a fan. Mm-hmm. And that's not a thing you would do if you had nothing but secret resentment in your heart for them. Mm-hmm. Sanatoshi calls her an admirable girl. I love how quickly he flips there. Like, there's obvious, there's something kind of sinister in the way that he kind of tries to... He's trying deliberately to get her to wallow in self-pity a little bit. Mm-hmm. Or to feel bad for having had any amount of self-pity or pain is kind of how I'm interpreting this. Mm-hmm. Because as, as, as soon as he says, you are an admirable girl, realizing that tact doesn't work, he switches immediately to... But why did that happen to such a kind-hearted girl? And Himari says, I don't know. 
And he prods her again. Didn't you come here to search for the answer? She says, no, I don't know. I just don't know. While she looks at a little like statuette figure thing of uh, the double H girls. We did see, by the way, in that her little montage of her watching the episode, uh, the televised version of their concert, sadly, her maracas are in the room. Mm -hmm. She definitely, she may not have any resentment in her heart, but you can tell she definitely regrets not being able to be on stage with them, which means that the events of the Dear Your Future ending sequence hit a lot harder mm-hmm. now that you know what that's actually what's actually going on there. That is Himari kind of imagining the performance avenue she never got to have with the others. Anyway, Sanatoshi goes, but has the story really ended as he reshelves the book? As I said, the book you truly want to read from the bottom of your heart is here. And that book is Super Frog Saves Tokyo. And meanwhile, Sunny is playing with some uh, magnifying glasses, making her eyes different sizes. <laughs> she tries to read one of the books, which is great. It's extremely cute. Extremely cute. Big Velma from Scooby-Doo energy. And then Sanatoshi reaches between the books and pulls out the penguin hat. And a series of spotlights come on and then converge as Sanatoshi is now wearing the suit we see him in in the opening sequence. And Himari asks what this thing is. And he responds, the wedding veil bestowed on the bride of fate. As Himari asks if she is the bride and whose bride she will become, Sanatoshi places the hat on her head. She is immediately covered by the train of the prince told the... Sorry, I should probably rephrase that because there was a literal train in the sequence where she shows up. She is covered by the outfit of the princess of the crystal. And Sanatoshi just dips her and says, the answer to that question is probably at the destination of fate. Or another way you could say that, the end of the world. Yep. She failed to revolutionize the world. And then they both jump in a car and he jumps on the hood and it speeds away. (laughs) So as Himari stares up at him, he leans closer as if he is about to kiss her. You're all like, yeah, yeah. And then as Sanatoshi tells her, says, I'll tell you the answer when you need me again, after you return to your world, still leaning in uncomfortably, as he continues to say whose bride you are, until then, Himari just puts a finger up and stops his lips and goes, no. <laughs> and he stops. Consent respecting king. <laughs> I'm not sure if that's consent respecting king or Himari is just absolutely like, whatever power Himari has in this exchange is something that he's kind of forced to respect. <laughs> Himari is very much just, like, refusing to let this guy tell her who she is or what she wants. Uh, the library begins to fall away. Sonatoshi releases his grip on her as she begins to fall toward the ground. We see a sticker of a the little rockhopper penguin face on a box pulling away to reveal the more standard penguin logo. A song starts to play in the background, notably. Uh, this is the song Grey Wednesday, and I believe this actually is credited to Triple H. The, when the Rockhopper Penguin sticker peels away, the logo says underneath it, Pengroup.ink. Yep, and it's the uh, specifically the little stylized penguin face we've seen before, and it looks like that is on a little box which Sunny jumps into that clearly contains Penguin 1 and Penguin 2. This, I believe, is the box that they got sent with the penguins in it. Yep. This, all of this reminds me of, of course, the, like, Capazon aesthetics (laughs) in Sarah's Anmai. Yep. So, as Grey Wednesday continues to play and the box shoots away on a conveyor belt, Santoshi says, oh, don't forget this, and drops an apple. The same apple we've seen in the opening sequence and the one that kind of represents like half of the everything in this show (laughs) as we cut to what appears to be some other kind of flashback so this is a very strange visual we're seeing here it's a room full of people again represented by subway station uh traffic sign cutouts who are all sitting curled up into little balls well they're not just people Cass. 
I, I'm getting there. <laughs> there is a giant poster on the wall between two massive Silent Hill-ass industrial fans. And the poster on the wall shows a child-sized subway figure being thrown into a trash can and just says in bright pastel letters, Child Broiler! Yeah! Where are we and what the fuck is going on? Yeah! Yeah, so these are definitely kids. Naughty children are thrown in the child broiler. To atone for their crimes. So, we cut away from the child broiler and see Himari holding the apple together with a boy. And if you notice the way that they look right now... Uh, this is very clearly what the statues in front of the library were based off of, except the boy statue has his arms down. That's true. But uh, he already thinks this boy, whoever he is, for choosing her, as he suggests they share the fruit of fate. And... Himari kind of remembers, right, I had someone very precious to me. This boy is shown entirely in silhouette. She cannot remember his face. She only remembers he is her soulmate. And the only detail of color we see on him is that that he has blue shoes, which could mean anything. Yeah. And might mean nothing. And as she begins to return, bam, survival strategy. And Himari wakes up, present day, present time. Ha ha ha. She asks if she was dreaming about something. And we see Sunny also asleep in the bed, and it's very cute. And as Humari stretches, she mentions she doesn't remember the dream. Then hears a phone call, picks it up, and as she answers the phone, she finds out that Shoma has been hit by a car. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and Sunny rolls over to reveal that the real super frog saves Tokyo was within the bed the whole time. And Sunny was laying on it the whole time. Yep. We could have avoided that whole sequence. In all seriousness, first of all, did we last episode, did I on air uh, issue my sad correction for our mistake about the ending song already? Yes. Yes, yes. Okay, so we've already gone over that. My apologies to Coltar of the Deepers again. Uh, (laughs) I'm more of their music, and uh, I will forever be doing a penance walk, because they're really good. (laughs) The name of this episode, by the way, is Frozen World. So it does stand out a lot what's going on in Dear Your Future, now that we have the context of Triple H in a more specific way. This is, to some extent, Himari could be interpreted as... Himari's dreams of the adolescence she could have had if she hadn't gotten sick and or that, whatever that is, hadn't happened. And she was able to actually perform with her friends. Mm -hmm. And it's just her imagining all of the fun things that would have been part of that they would have done together. Which kind of explains both the... Yep, there it is! There it is! I found it! Yeah. (laughs) They are, in fact, in this one shot as Himari fixes her hair... Uh, Hibari is playing her tambourine and Hikari notably is holding up what we now know were Himari's maracas. Mm-hmm. But yeah, this is all kind of, to some extent, the fantasy life Himari would have wanted for herself, which could also indicate that that's what's going on with the red string of fate imagery right at the end. Anyway, uh, next episode, someone finally remembered their connection. <laughs> As, uh... I believe that's penguin number two uh, is in like a pipe. Yep, a big old giant industrial sized pipe. He pulls a little pull cord and water gushes out of the pipe next to him, dropping penguin number one out of it. And we get a very topless drawing of Sanatoshi. Is that Sanatoshi? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, you're right. Fuck. He's too feminine. My brain is Mari's mob because of the koi reference at the end there. Survival strategy lived to 100. So that was the episode. That koi thing fucked me up. Yeah, um, it was pretty fucked up. That was somehow more fucked up than the cat. Well, it's definitely more like... Visceral. Viscerally, like, violent. (laughs) Or almost violent. I guess technically it doesn't actually get violent. It's somehow worse, despite not getting actually violent for me. Because it's just the vision of this child 
holding this bat ready to murder a living thing over a childish misunderstanding is just that's fucking bleak yeah with the cat it's like she's making this choice out of just these, these childish emotions but this is like genuinely they don't understand that that's not real yeah woof a good episode though yeah and unless I'm mistaken, Sanatoshi is like kind of our big bad. I don't know. He's definitely like, as far as I know, like our primary antagonist, at least for a while. So I don't really, you know, I don't know what his deal is. I haven't seen episode 10 or anything past this, but I'm excited to see what this beautiful man holds for our future. I fear this beautiful man. Me too. I do as well. I am very proud of our girl, though. Kimari standing up to Sanatoshi in a bunch of small ways was actually the most surprising thing about the episode. If there's a contrast between how he has been presented in his debut appearance versus Akio, Sanatoshi very clearly holds all the cards and seems to be kind of master of whatever system is going on and playing out here. But it's kind of notable that in direct contrast to how Akio can kind of talk people literally right into bed with him and thus disaster, uh, Himari just resists him at every point where he kind of tries to twist the knife. Mm-hmm. All of her answers are, as far as we can tell, honest. She sets deliberate boundaries with him, and when he attempts to, in her, the one moment where she's most off her guard physically take advantage of her just firmly tells him no and it's kind of and he ends up respecting it which himari's just built different himari is very much built different uh it kind of speaks to like she's got a very quiet core of strength going on which is which is also not how the voice seem to see her yes Mm -hmm. like the himari of this episode does not seem to be a himari that her brothers are like aware of they oh, don't absolutely. see her as being this way like they love her and it's not like their attitude towards her is bad malevolent it's just oh, no it has consequences and that they're not able to understand her as a more complex person who has some complicated feelings about the past because they're too busy in, in being invested seeing her as their fragile sister that they have to carry around Yep, which there are lots of events that inform both of them in that way, and I'm sure in a future episode we'll get some that kind of inform Shoma's perspective as well. We've already seen why Kanba, for instance, might think of her as deeply fragile, because we've already seen the episode where we went out in a typhoon. Yeah, it is understandable the way that they feel about her, but, you know, it's ultimately more harmful than it is good. Yeah. Like, it's very understandable. That's kind of why it's so sad, is that, like, this is a normal and natural response to the fact that she is very sick and has obviously been through a lot of stuff that we don't yet know about. Mm -hmm. But also, despite it being a natural defensive response to huddle, to, to circle the wagons around her and keep her away from what they think of as the world that wants to harm her, it also keeps them from really understanding the person that they love. Mm-hmm. It's, this is a thing that Ikuhara has done a bunch of times. Absolutely. This is too. Like, mm-hmm. this, this sort of def- the defensive reflex is itself kind of, it, it's self-defeating. It, it closes you off from the world, and it can close other people off from the world when you do it to them. I mean, it's kind of been uh, Yurikuma as well, if you yeah. want to get that far, too. It's definitely one of the enduring themes that we see pop yeah. up throughout his oeuvre. Yeah. Like, it's in, every, it's in all of the shows. Mm-hmm. I, I, I tend to think of it as being one of Ikuhara's main core themes. Yeah. Is sort of the defensive responses to trauma are very understandable and very natural, and also you should try very hard not to get caught in them sometimes you can love someone so hard you don't actually know them yeah and yeah this this is definitely more dimensionality than himari's been presented with so far and it's also very much like 
the nice thing about it is that it's, it's also dimensionality that is deliberately not showing us that we were wrong in other impressions of her. Like Nothing about what we've seen in this episode contradicts the characterization we've gotten for Himari so far. I mean, yeah. she's very sweet. She is a little bit uh, childish when she wants to be, but it's very much controlled, deployed childishness. Mm-hmm. Uh, she is very willing to kind of mess with her brothers by, you know, kind of like leaning on the fact that they are increase incredibly overprotective of her. And she is exactly the kind of, you know, happy, cheerful person we've seen, but with exactly the kind of tastes we've seen. She is unabashedly feminine and likes unabashedly adorable things. But she is also very clearly someone who has a lot of knowledge of her own mind and her own feelings and her own desires and needs and is willing to assert that when she is given literally any opportunity. Which begs the question, are the boys doing the right thing by not telling her about the situation they're in? Something that I just thought of that Himari kind of reminds me of is she reminds me of that quote from... Uh, everything everywhere all at once that I see in memes everywhere where Wayman says uh, when I choose to see the good side of things I'm not being naive it is strategic and necessary it's how I learned to survive through everything yes it's very much that's that. Himari are you saying that it's a survival tactic that's yes. Himari's survival tactic survival tactic survival tactic there we go we did it. Anyway, so yeah, I really like this episode. I'm glad uh, to finally meet Sanatoshi because I've been wondering who this man is every time we watch the opening sequence. And, um, you know, interested to see what happened to Shoma. <laughs> because by the time we got to the end of the episode, I had completely forgotten that he got hit by a fucking car. <laughs> yep. Next time we will be seeing what happens to him because I've accidentally seen next time. So <laughs> uh, we're a whole lot's about to happen, kids. And yeah, I hope you enjoyed this introspective episode because next episode is oops, all forward plot momentum. <laughs> all right. Well, if that's all we've got for tonight, listeners, if you'd like to follow us on Twitter, you can do that. At Utenacast, if you would like to follow me on Twitter, you can do that at Impandanata. Alice, where can people find you online? Oh, uh, they can find me at Lyrewolf, L-Y-R-E-W-U-O-F. And Cass, where can people find that podcast that you and Alice do? I'm glad you asked. Do you like real robots? Cool robots? Real cool robots? Well... You shouldn't be looking for any new content right this second because we're still making it, but <laughs> you can check out Alice and I's other podcast, Big Steppy, anywhere on the internet, fine podcasts are sold, or on its official Twitter account, at SteppyCast. And if you would like to support this podcast, you could do it on Patreon. You can find that at utanicast.com. And if you uh, subscribe to the Patreon, you get episodes before they are released to the public, usually with uh, some bonus things that get cut out for the final release. So uh, check that out. Think of all the cool jokes by me that you've missed over the over these Many, many, many years. Think of all the cringe things I've said. Think of the insane things that Alice has uttered into microphones that you might have access to if you pledge as little as a single dollar every month to me. If you pledge a dollar, I will get Alice to say something incredibly cringe and it will be yours and you can hold it in your heart. <laughs> That'll be our next... Uh, patron reward is uh alice will say something cringe of your choosing eventually we're going to get to the uh membership tier where i just do an asmr reading of explain i explain the pyrrhic war to you in asmr <laughs> and how i think it would be an awesome anime if we get far enough i will write spicy fanfic i don't know about what but i will sure i can make that a Patreon no, role. Why not? Uh, Yasha is supposed to write us some Kepi fan fiction. <laughs> oh no! 
I know. The doors I will open will never again be closed. (laughs) (laughs) On that note, I think it's time for us to wrap up. Yeah. um, If you would like to get in contact with us, you can reach out to us on Twitter or you can email us at imagineandutina at gmail.com. Or if you would like to come on this show, you can fill out the Google form in our pinned tweet and I will get back to you at some point after you do that. And I think that's everything. And if it's not, I'm tired. It's like 1030. Yeah. It's time for us to go to bed. And by us, I mean uh, me and probably Cass. Uh, As we all know, Alice does not sleep. I am always awake. She's been here the whole time. So uh, we're going to count down three, two, one, and we're all going to say survival tactic. All right. Sounds good. Three, two, one. Survival Survival tactic. tactic!